Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, October 31st, we are studying Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 63. Today's text details the rest of the inheritance in the promised land for the tribe of Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So, Pastor Kuntz, this we're recording before Reformation, but this is airing on the day of Reformation, October 31st, 2022. And Joshua 15 is the perfect chapter for the Reformation, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it is uh, it is about God's people coming into their heritage, their inheritance that he's laid out for them. So I, I don't think it's a bad text for today. And <laughs> Happy Halloween to to other listeners as well. Very good, very good. So, so Pastor Coons, as, as we get started, what kind of context do we need to know as we prepare to look at this section of Joshua 15? Overall, you're dealing with what you might think of as the real estate portion of the book of Joshua, what the different places are that God is giving to the different tribes of Israel as they enter into the land of Canaan, dealing here specifically with the tribe of Judah, and then individually with Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He is very important as one of only two men who has made it both out of Egypt and into Canaan. And that is because of the the lack of fear at the giants in the land and the multitude of tribes and occupiers in the land that he and Joshua, the other uh, let's say, enduring the surviving heir exhibited when they went to spy out the land. So this is in some ways a culmination of things that began three or four books earlier in Scripture. It's not just a, a bare list of uh, obscure things. Okay, so it's it's not just a bare list of obscure things, which is always good when we come to a, a chapter like that, which seems like a bare list of obscure things. <laughs> lots of lots of names that I get to to struggle yeah. through pronun- pronouncing as as best as we can. Just thinking about this chapter in general, and we we've talked about this already somewhat in the book of Joshua because this is not the first chapter that includes a lot of geography, as you said, the real estate portion. When, yeah. when you look at a, a chapter like Joshua 15, and, and this is one of those chapters where if you're reading the Bible straight through, you might be tempted to skip over it or skim over it. You know, if, if you've got one of your parishioners there in Denver who asks you, Pastor Kuntz, why should I read Joshua 15? Why should I care about all of these place names in 2022? How do you, how do you answer that question? You would care about them for the same reason that you would care about the genealogies, especially the really extensive ones that you get in Genesis, but particularly in, say, First Chronicles, 
because those names as well as those places and we'll see especially some of the places are particularly significant but they're all in some way significant for the history of god's people when you're reading the old testament you're reading church history so with the same care or interest that you might devote to your own genealogy or a description of the property that you own or your congregation's history you can read the scriptures with the same care because for the whole church throughout all time, those places and those names are significant. Uh, those people did mighty things and inherited wonderful things from the Lord. So what we're tracing when we trace the scriptures is the history of God with his people. And that's very specific here in chapter 15 to the tribe of Judah, which is, of course, the tribe from which our Lord himself comes. So we want to we want to understand Joshua 15 and really all of this section of the book of Joshua as our own family history or our own yeah. family geography to to stick with the the land image that we've got today. And I, I think that's one of the the challenges perhaps it's I don't know I'm an American Christian so that's really all I can speak for. But it, it seems to be a challenge of American Christians in particular sometimes is that we we have a limited view of history and we don't know a lot of history and we see it as unimportant, but maybe by holding on to this as our family history, that can make it a little more, I don't know, it brings it, the importance yeah. out to us a little bit more than just a, a list of names that I've never heard of and maybe can't pronounce, but this is actually my own family history. And when it's my own family history, then hopefully I, I take a little bit more interest and see the, the importance of it than if it's just a bunch of names I've never heard of. Right. And it helps you understand something that is true for every Christian, which is that you have, as it were, two families and, and two heritages. You have a family into which you are born by your first birth. You have a heritage that has come from them. Some people know quite a bit about that. Some people don't really know, you know their own, who their great-grandparents were. You also have, by virtue of your second birth, a family and a heritage that extends throughout all time and over the whole world at some times that family's heritage has been very narrow and particular as it is in the book of joshua where practically everyone who believes on the lord is in one of these 12 tribes so that's partly why this matters so much so in the same way that maybe on reformation day you would go look at a biography of luther or something and learn something about the geography of Saxony to know where Luther was born and where he grew up and where Wittenberg is, where he did most of his ministry. That's very important. That little narrow point, that little part of the earth for a particular part of the church's history in the same way, the book of Joshua is showing you today, what are the boundaries of the land that was given to the tribe from which David comes and the tribe from which the son of David, Jesus Christ comes. So, I mean, and I've, I've been trying to, to think of a, a way to, to put this into, you know, our, our day and age. So here in, here in Smithville, the, the church that we currently worship in is called the new church. It was built in 1985. And some yeah. of our longtime members will talk about the old church, which was as, as I sit right now, kind of behind me on a, yeah. on a piece of property that the church still owns. And actually you can, you can see and get an idea of where that building once was based on where certain sidewalks just kind of abruptly stop in the middle of a, of a, <laughs> you know, I mean like, wait, why is there a sidewalk here? Well, that's cause that's where the church used to sit. 
And so although, yeah. you know, I personally never was a pastor when that church building was standing there and never preached from the pulpit in that building, just knowing that that's a part of this church's history it does make a difference and it certainly makes a difference to these people. And and yeah. maybe if you know we think of the book of Joshua kind of like that that we're learning this is where a real people actually lived and this is the people of God and I'm a part of the people of God. I don't know that that helps me I think to to in appreciate this text more than just a, a bare list of random names. Right. And in the same way that sometimes congregations get a little confused, they think that they belong because they belong to that family of God in that place because their grandparents did or something like that. In the same way, you'll see the same confusion. People are not interested in Joshua because they think of that as the history of the Jews or something. Um, you can write a history of families without the promises of God if you want to. Um, I, I could write my own family history. That's, that's the family of the first birth. What is recorded in Holy Scripture, however, is a history of that family by the second birth, the family by promise, or the family by virtue of the Holy Spirit's action. And so we're not just reading a history of a specific ancient tribe. We're reading a history of the church in an ancient time. All right. So we've got two parts, and they are related. Part of it deals with Caleb and his family specifically, and the rest mm-hmm. deals with, with Judah. Do you want to go ahead and read part of those parts of the text and then kind of dig in, or do you have introductory thoughts on Caleb and Judah to, to start? I think we said a little bit about Caleb. It is, it is important to know about his bravery and his courage before now. That may explain the little test that you're about to read that he's going to put a potential son-in-law too. All right. Well, let's go ahead and read that first part then. This is Joshua 15, and we're starting now at verse 13. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Safer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-Safer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Aksa his daughter as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. That takes us through verse 19. That deals with Caleb, Othniel, Othniel's wife, the quest for springs. This is a, an interesting little tale right here in the middle. Some some heroics, I think, are in there, at least yeah. behind it. Uh, what, what do we need to see from this account of Caleb and his family? First, you get the recounting of Caleb's actual conquest. And what gets referenced there is this ancestor, Enoch, uh, his descendants are called the Anakim. Here we have a list of the three of them, but they are famously monstrous, monstrously large. When the Israelite spies saw them earlier during the wilderness wandering, they said that when they saw them, the Israelites felt like they were grasshoppers. 
tiny, insignificant, about to be stepped on. So what's happening is that according to the Lord's promise, in which Caleb has actually trusted, he has inherited, he has come into what the Lord has given him. And it it's very interesting that the places pretty much all have names to begin with. And both the ones here and some of the ones that we'll read later on in the chapter are names reminiscent of pag- pagan men and in some cases of pagan gods. But this is a land that the Lord himself is is cleansing according to his commandments. So Joshua is one place to see how all the words that are said from Exodus through Deuteronomy actually play out in addition to the prophecies about the land from Genesis, that the Lord is actually delivering and does deliver on his promises, even if it's hundreds of years, a very long time, many generations between the promise and the fulfillment. Mm. And so that's, I think that's just helpful to know about the, the Lord's word, how that, how that works. So, and, and particularly with the role of Caleb here as one of the two faithful spies who mm-hmm. had seen the Anakim and now is one of them who is actually going to drive out the Anakim. Not only, I think, do you see that the Lord's word proves true, that he fulfills his word, but Caleb's previous trust in the Lord was justified. Like, it, it, it's proved right. true that Caleb, as it, as it turned out, and this shouldn't surprise us, but as it yeah. turned out, Caleb was right to trust the Lord in the first place. And had, <laughs> right. had all of the spies done so, and the people of the Lord done so, what happens now, this is 40, 40 plus years later, what happens now could have happened then. And so, the, I mean, and that's, I think that's an important thing to, to see with Caleb here is that his trust from 40 years that's continued, it's been justified. It's been proved, he's vindicated. That's the word I'm looking for. The Lord has vindicated the trust of Caleb through this little account. Yeah, and vindication is a word that Paul is going to use for what happens in Jesus's resurrection, that he is vindicated by the Spirit. So this idea that the servant of the Lord trusts in the Lord, and then his trust is proven not to be foolhardy, is very important for understanding what it means for us to trust in the Lord, and, and why Paul will say something like, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because what the Lord is intending for his people by his promises is is better and beyond imagining. This is true for Caleb. How much more is it true for us in the resurrection? So when you think about Caleb, you can think about the nature of trust because Caleb is trusting the Lord's word concerning the destruction of the inhabitants of the land, concerning his inheritance, concerning the Lord's power to do all these things, more than the evidence of his eyes, where he looks at the sons of Anak and he looks like a grasshopper mm. to himself. So, I mean, that that certainly points us toward the resurrection. How else do we see that that vindication of trust in the in the New mm. Testament? You you mentioned what going with what God says over what you see. And that reminds me of Second Corinthians chapter 5, that we live by faith and not by sight. How else do you yeah. see that, that same theme of vindication of trust in the New Testament? Yeah, you get, you, you, both toward the end of the Gospels and toward the end of Acts, you get actions by servants of the Lord, Jesus Christ and, and Paul, respectively, who are 
mocked uh, by those around them who believe that their trust is, is foolish, right? So you get the only instance of anyone laughing in the Gospels is when Jesus said that, says that the little girl is not dead but sleeping, and they, and they laugh at him, and he sends the people out and then says, Talithikumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. But the same thing happens at his crucifixion, that uh, he saved others, uh, now he can save himself, or that he is crying out for someone to help him, and the crowd is confused about to whom he cries. So the, the crucifixion itself is like Caleb's trust in a, trusting in a word of God over what others around him think and what his eyes may show him. It's a similar thing when Paul says that everyone is going to survive the imminent shipwreck near the end of the book of Acts, and they think he's crazy because they think they're all going to die. They do, in fact, survive according to what Paul prophesies. So this is always the way it is with the servants of the Lord, that we're walking by faith because we're walking by virtue of a word that God has given us, not by the evidence of our eyes, which anybody, uh, not the sons of God, could do. Uh, but the sons of God live by the word of God. So in, in our lives as Christians, then, I mean, one one thought that comes to my mind, because we, we had a funeral here at Grace recently, a, a Christian mm-hmm. funeral is a good example where Christians live by faith despite what they see, that right. even, you know, when there's a, a casket in the church and we're standing around an open grave, we're singing hymns of resurrection, we're proclaiming promises of Christ, which may seem foolish to the world. What do you mean? There's you, there's a dead body right there, and there's an open hole, and, and the person's going to be buried there. And yet we know that our trust in the Lord will be vindicated, that he will return on the last day, and this one who has died in him will be raised to life. And so we have that that hope, that comfort that surpasses all understanding, that we grieve with that hope. I mean, that's that, to me, that's, that's a good example of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and— we say at a funeral that the, that the person is being buried in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And in this way, the book of Joshua is sort of like a picture uh, in its own way of resurrection life, almost like John 21 or Luke 24 or any other little glimpses that you get of total deliverance on God's promises. So, the land is not the end goal for God's people. It is the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, but it is a beautiful picture on the way to that seed's birth of what it will be like. And I think that's what's particularly beautiful about the request of Aksa to her father, that now that she's going to have, she's going to have this husband who is brave like her father is, which is a wonderful thing too. Othniel's bravery is proven. Now they need something to sustain them. She asks for a field. He gives her springs. Mm-hmm. So the the difference here is that she asks for what is obviously workable or helpful, and he gives her an, an unending source that can then be used for various fields, uh, actually two of them, the upper and the lower springs. And so what you get here is this gift that abounds beyond what she asks for. There's a there's a goodness or a graciousness about it that is not usually found in the book of Joshua and that people, I don't think, really remember. Maybe from Joshua, they remember 
the walls of Jericho, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind right. of it. Yeah. And then it's going to be bad in Judges, I suppose. But maybe there the sun's standing still in the middle usually shows yeah, the up sun's, too. Yeah, the There you go. Sun standing yeah. still. So these are things that little kids will get in Bible storybooks and the adults will faintly remember. But there are very beautiful little moments like this, like the giving of the springs to Othniel and Axa, that are little pointers toward the nature of the life and the promises of God, where there is abundance and, and kindness and graciousness. Um, I have several ancestors, as long as we're talking about genealogy, named things like Axa, because people in colonial New England uh, seem to have known a lot about the Bible, at least wow. when they named their kids. And what's interesting about little names like that is that it reminds you of things you would never otherwise conceive of and this is this is one of the beautiful stories of the of the scriptures in its own way it's like a little vignette version of the same graciousness and kindness and beauty within a family that you get in the book of ruth mm, yeah wow so uh, you have an ancestor named oxa really wow uh, yep i have a i've got a couple wow yeah, so. that's fantastic okay so so in your own <laughs> genealogy you have an opportunity to read joshua 15 and to to appreciate what what happens here yeah yeah those yeah the uh the the Puritan the Puritan naming customs give you a lot of obscure Old Testament references, but what you will generally find is that I mean yeah they're looking for girls' names I think is part of the problem. <laughs> sure, okay. Um, and sometimes they run out and name name the girl something like thankful or fear as in fear of God, but but the references give you access to these beautiful stories, and I think that when we don't know stories like this, we also have relatively little conception of well, what would it be like if I found courage in my family? How should that be rewarded? Or what would it be like if I gave my children better than they even expected or or whatever the case may be? And so I find this to be one of the most beautiful stories in the book of Joshua. Hmm. So, okay. And that's, that's fantastic because I, this is one of those that I know I didn't learn in Sunday school. And as I said, you, you're reading all these names and you're tempted to, to skip over parts like this, but right. then you do miss this wonderful little story. You, you use the word courage several times. Yeah. How, how do you see courage play in? And I, I think it's, it's both in Othniel and in Aksa. How do you see yes. courage in this account? Aksa has the courage of someone who is praying, asking her dear father as as children are wont to do. So she gives a good example of prayer to the heavenly father, as well as the relationship between a child and a father, that she is ready to ask for what she finds needful, and he is ready to give above what she asks. The courage that Othniel displays in the capture of Kiriath Sefer is akin to both his future father-in-law's courage, Caleb's, but also to Joshua's. And courage here is maybe the best English word for the overall reality that Joshua, for example, in chapter one is exhorted to be strong, um, to, to play the man uh, is a very old English idiom for this, to be strong, uh, to be ready for action, and then to go into action. Joshua is a practical book in this way, and courage is a practical virtue. It's not just something that you might say, oh, he's courageous, and you'd say, well, how do you know that? Uh, well, you need kind of an event to prove that you are courageous, that you're ready to do something that seems difficult, uh, you're ready to do something that seems hard, 
But what it also shows is Othniel living in the promises of God that that this land will now belong to Judah, that they will be a kind of collective judgment on the inhabitants of the land, especially on the Anakim, and that thereafter uh, what God says will go. So Othniel goes up in the strength of the Lord's promises. And so courage isn't just sort of a quality in yourself. It is a trust in the Lord's promises that then gets carried into action against some kind of odds or with lots of factors going against you. Nonetheless, you go into action because the Lord has promised that you will prevail. Well, and your your mention of the courage and connecting it back to the Lord's commissioning of Joshua in chapter one is fantastic. I remember when we talked about those verses that it is it's more than the Lord telling Joshua to just man up and find something right. within himself, because right. he also continues to reiterate the promise, "I will be with you wherever you go." I mean, and right. that's been a huge theme in Joshua is that right. the people have been successful in their conquest not because of their own military strategy or might but because they've listened to the Lord's word. And here you have an, an individual who puts that into practice. And, and what a right. what a wonderful example of the way faith does go right together with works. I mean, you know, the trust in the Lord's right. promise leads Othniel to do this very, I mean, seemingly crazy thing, but this courageous thing because he's got the Lord's word. Right, precisely. Yeah, so faith and works going together, courage coming from both Othniel and from Aksa in their military action, in their prayer, faith and works. We're going to keep seeing how the book of Joshua gives us both of those things on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're looking at Joshua 15 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 31st. We're studying Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 63 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. He is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, prior to the break, we were talking about the courage of both Othniel and Aksa in their conquest of part of the land and in Aksa's request to her dad, Caleb. One of the things that may be surprising to modern readers of the scripture is is Aksa's courage, even as a, a woman asking from her father. Sometimes in our day and age, I think there are people that look at the scriptures and they think it's a backwards book, that women are unimportant. Some of these, you know, rather silly criticisms of the scriptures, but here we do see a, a wonderful example that women are 
most certainly valued within the scriptures. And any thoughts on the the role of women here and, and throughout the scriptures? I think that when people are thinking about the Bible as a backward book or something, what they're doing is just exhibiting a common modern prejudice against the past generally, and then the Bible specifically, the assumption that we know better now or that human nature has changed sufficiently that things from the past, whether the way our grandmother lived or much less the Bible from thousands of years ago, has no bearing on how we live our lives and how we think about men and women and how they relate to each other. That causes people to be I think very blind, but also for them to miss things like this story where what's happening is not that Aksa uh, is claiming something that belongs to her by right, because inheritance, you will already know from Moses's law, as well as lots of different episodes that we'll see in the Old Testament, inheritance passes down through the man. That's a big difference, for instance, between the Bible and uh, modern Jewish law, where, for example, the notion of whether you are or aren't Jewish is passed down through the mother. In the Bible, both your name and then also your inheritance get passed down through the man. There's the exception of the daughters of Zelophehad, but that's because there's no son in the family, so they specifically request to keep the inheritance in their father's tribe. So what's happening is that Aksa is asking for something that her father doesn't have to give that's important to understand that otherwise she would only have what othniel possessed let's say as her husband so what's happening in this gift is not only that a field is asked for but then two springs which are much more valuable in a hot dry climate than just a field not only is something beautiful and abundant given beyond what she asked but the fact that she has given anything is not forced from her father so the relationship here is a relationship of graciousness like we said before the break but we could also see it as a picture of grace strictly speaking where what is not at all deserved what is not at all necessary to be given it is nonetheless given Connect that then to what you, you, you said earlier about the boldness of prayer and the courage of prayer. Connect, and you, you quoted from Luther's small catechism from the, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Connect, yeah. connect that thought to the boldness of prayer that, that we are still privileged to have as Christians. We, we have a privilege. You know, Aksa can ask because she is his daughter. It's not just some random lady off the street that is asking Caleb for these things. There is that relationship there already. She she is his daughter. But also, it's not just that we are God's children. It's that he loves to give in this way that Caleb gives. So when you're praying, you don't have to think, oh, well, I'm asking because I have to, or I hope he's interested in listening, or maybe he will listen to me. You know, faith doesn't think that way about God. Faith knows that God is like Caleb in his open-handedness, and his delight and his desire to give well above what is needed, right? And so David speaks in the way that Aksa could also speak when in the 23rd Psalm, he says, my cup runneth over. 
you know, I have, I have more than I need. I asked for a field. My, my father gave me two springs. You know, this is to say like, I asked for peace and my father gave me peace now and he gave me resurrection in the life everlasting or whatever it might be. But Caleb here is a beautiful picture of the heavenly father's way with his children. Yeah. I mean, the way Jesus speaks in, in Luke 11, when he gives the Lord's prayer there, and then he, he uses the illustration that he uses in other places in Matthew's gospel about, you know, your, even your earthly father knows how to give you good gifts. But, right. but in Luke 11, he specifically says, how much more will the heavenly father not just give good gifts, but give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask right. him. So, I mean, you know, that's the good gift that he's got in mind, and he's going to give that to you over and above everything, because that's what he wants you to have, and he knows what you need it. Him, sorry, not him, not, yeah, need him, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah and, and, and when, when Paul is talking about the Spirit in Titus, he talks about a lavish washing, and he talks about how the Father pours out this spirit of rebirth and renewal. And so this, this idea that uh, the grace is like the springs given to Aksa and Othniel, that they are lavish and they supply far more than you need. Uh, you're going to hear something like this when Jesus, before he even speaks of the sending of the helper earlier in John, when he talks about the well of the well of life, this water welling up within the one who trusts in him. Um, unto eternal life so that water becomes, and it's not accidental, therefore, that baptism is, is with water. Water is the source of life. That's why it's so beautiful that Aksa asks for one field to sustain them, I suppose, and Caleb gives her two springs instead. So with that story in the middle, what a beautiful account. And then the book of Joshua continues with the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, and we get a list of cities that occur throughout their land, and it's an extensive list. So we're going to read it. We're picking up the text again here in Joshua 15, verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabziel, Ader, Jagur, Kena, Demona, Adada, Kadesh, Hadzor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telam, Bealoth, Hadzor, Hadata, Kiriath Hezron, that is Hadzor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hadzor Gada, Heshmon, Beth Pelet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Bidzioe, Bala, Im, Edzem, Eltol, Kessel, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, San Sana, Lebeoth, Shelihim, Ayan, and Rimon, in all 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtael, Zora, Ashna, Zanoa, and Ganim, Tapua, Enam, Jarmuth, Adolam, Soko, Azaka, Sharim, Adataim, Gedera, Gederotaim, 14 cities with their villages. Zinan, Hadasha, Migdalgad, Dilian, Mizpeh, Joktiel, Lakish, Boskath, Eglon, Kabon, Lahom, Chitlish, Gederoth, Beth Dagon, Naaman, and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Aether, Ashan, Ifton, Ashna, Nezib, Kela, Akzib, and Marasha, nine cities with their villages. 
Ekron with its town and its villages, and from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod, with their villages, Ashdod, with its towns and its villages, Gaza, its towns and its villages, to the brook of Egypt, and the great sea with its coastline, and in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Soko, Dana, Kiriath Sana, that is Debir, Anab, Eshtemo, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, eleven cities with their villages, Arab, Duma, Eshan, Janim, Beth, Tapua, Afeka, Humta, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages, Maon, Carmel, Ziph, Juta, Jezreel, Jokdiam, Zanoa, Kain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages, Halhul, Bethzur, Gedor, Martha, Beth Anoth, and Elekton, six cities with their villages, Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages, in the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midin, Sekakah, Nibshan, the city of salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. It's the rest of our text for today that takes us through the end of Joshua chapter 15. Okay, Pastor Coons, you feel free to correct any of my pronunciation when you mention any of these cities as needed. <laughs> Let, let's talk maybe more general. I think you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. That's, whew, that was, that's quite the list. So let's talk generally, though. We're talking about the tribe of Judah. And at least, I mean, for, for readers of the Old Testament who are paying attention to the line of the seed, anytime we see Judah, this should be, we should be paying attention to that. So tell us about Judah as a tribe. Judah is the brother who put himself potentially in Benjamin's place um, when Benjamin's life was perhaps forfeit to Joseph for the purported theft that the remaining brothers had made from Joseph, uh, whom they did not know was their brother when they sought food in Egypt. And Benjamin was going to stand as security for these things, Judah was willing to uh, go into captivity and potentially to die for the sake of these things, and then also to ensure Benjamin's safety vis-a-vis -vis his father, Jacob's desire not to see any more dead sons. So Judah is given at the very end of the book of Genesis, and this is where you have to see that all the books of scripture are connected to each other. That's why you want to read around widely in the scriptures as well as in your favorite parts or the easy parts that judah is going to be given certain things uh, but most of all is that the scepter of rule of kingship will not depart from judah so anytime we see judah we're looking at the future of israel and in looking at the future of israel we're looking at the future of god's promises so we're looking at the future of the world from this tribe will come uh the messiah so that's that's why judah matters um some things you can see uh is that god is working not only in amazing or scripturally familiar ways but in ways that are somewhat ordinary um you have in that list at least two villages that sound a lot like each other something like ziff mm. in the same way that you have a springfield in practically every American state, perhaps somewhere 
or a Jefferson County or a, you know, Washington Township or something in many states. So some of these names are utterly ordinary. Um, others tell you the names of pagan gods like Ramon, like Beth, um, Dagon, who is the Philistine fish god. We'll talk more about the Philistines in a second. Um, and so what, what's happening with those names is that you can see that in the conquest of the land is a conquest of idolatry by the worship of the true God that's happening. They are coming into and occupying towns they did not build. So they're given gift wise to God's people who are then end up living in a town. It would be like a bunch of Christians coming into a town named, you know, Allah or prophet Muhammad town. Um, this would be a similar thing. So the list reveals much. Now there are certain things that we'll talk about now that you can see in these, in these town names, it is like a genealogy in this way that it's only dry. If you don't know the stories, right. if you can connect the towns with the stories, then the list of towns tells you much, but just as an overview, they're moving kind of from the south and then over to the west and then over to the east. And the point that they're moving from is the point at the very end in verse 63, which is Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So they say that's the beating heart that's going to be the beating heart of Judah. A prophet cannot perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have longed to gather you. But that center is still occupied by the Jebusites. Um, who are idolaters, but the whole story is moving kind of up to and then over to and then out from Jerusalem and then kind of that list ends on Jerusalem for that reason. So, okay, I appreciate bringing out the order of the towns and how that is driving us toward Jerusalem, just in terms yeah. of the extensiveness of this list. And, I, and we yeah. haven't read the whole book yet, but Joshua 15 is the longest chapter within the book of Joshua. And I know we divided it up into to two parts. We gave the first 12 verses uh, to the previous text, but that does deal with Judah as well. Just the, the great extensiveness, that too points to the, the importance of Judah within the history of God's people. Right, yeah. And, and that is not totally a reflection of political reality. It's a reflection of God's promises. Politically, the kingdom that will matter a whole lot will be centered around the tribe of Ephraim once the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom separate. And the northern kingdom, which is centered on Ephraim, who has abundant promises given to him, but not the promise of kingship, uh, for the sake of Joseph, God loves Ephraim. But Ephraim will not, although he matters much more politically, it, Syrian kings will make alliances with northern israelite kings he doesn't matter <laughs> in god's own reckoning of what is important what matters are god's promises which have narrowed down from simply the seed of abraham now to uh one who will come from judah's tribe it will get even narrower as we get into ruth excuse me, and into First Samuel. And now we will learn eventually by Second Samuel 7 that it must be a son of David. Hmm. But right now, it's certainly within the tribe of Judah. So that's why Judah gets more extensive description than any other tribe, even though Judah is not the most numerous and won't 
in the world's eyes ever be the most important of the tribes. Hmm. Right. I mean, when you look at when you look at a map of where these boundaries generally would have been, it, you compare the the space of the various tribes. Judah does have a large portion, mm-hmm. but particularly when you think about it, as you pointed out, in the divided kingdom, and you compare Judah and Simeon and, and Benjamin kind of being the southern kingdom and then everything else, Judah geographically and politically, as you said, really is a lot less important and a lot not nearly as big as the northern kingdom is. Right. And and yet that's where God hangs his hat. That's where these promises are going to be fulfilled. And as you said, this text is pointing us especially toward Jerusalem. And right. so you you see how the Lord, you know, he he does he writes the book of Joshua from a, a theological perspective rather than a political perspective with all these town names in in Judah. It kind of zeroing in, hey, pay attention to Judah going forward. Big things are going to happen here, even if it doesn't look like it now. Right. Yeah. The politics are are in the Bible, but they are subservient to God's purposes. So, for instance, in that list is the city of Lachish. Mm. That is where um, the Assyrians will actually be stopped. After conquering the northern kingdom, they believe that they're going to also destroy the southern kingdom immediately. But they they are stopped there and and are unable to take Jerusalem. So even just in that list, you have a foreshadowing of this reality of the divided kingdom. You have many other things as well if you're interested in going into this now. Um, Beersheba is a place that uh, you will be familiar with from Genesis. Uh, so the promise in which Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob hoped that the land that was developed by them, in that case, the wells that were dug, would actually be redeemed and brought back into the family's possession is now fulfilled in Judah's specific inheritance of Beersheba and the Negev. Mm. In addition to that, you're going to get, you have about something about these towns that is something like many places as you move, as the American frontier moved west, you would get um, (laughs) big, big, boisterous announcements of how great it was there, partly in order to get settlers to move there, but partly also to sort of project like this is what will happen. And what is interesting is is that there are places in that list that only ever tenuously come into Judah's possession. So there's a gap here between the, the promise, the inheritance given to Judah and what Judah in its fitful following of God is actually able to possess. So for instance, the town of Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G, that's a place that the that the listeners might recognize from the history of David, because David seizes that town and thereby brings it into Judah's possession. So if you took like a marker and you put like a blue highlight over Ziklag, and then you found the next time it's in the Bible, you're going to find that some elements of this conquest don't happen until many years later. Mm. And by that time, everyone has sort of forgotten that the conquest is supposed to be progressing. Mm. A really good example of that are the three Philistine towns that you read. I think it's Ekron, Ashdod, and Gaza in this list. Yeah. Gaza is still there um, in modern day Israel. It's in the, it's in one of the Palestinian territories. And those three towns are places that, the Judahites are are never going to 
totally politically control. Um, so the, the list is like God giving them more. And this goes for all the tribes together, but God giving them more than they ever end up mm. occupying. Um, they, they never press the conquest far enough. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the name of the, or the mention of the Philistine towns does stick out particularly in that regard. And, and I mean, what a, what a good reason again, to read a chapter like this so that when these names, some of them at least show up again, it mean the scriptures are just begging to be read <laughs> and to <Right>. be reread <laughs> and, and to, to put these things together. And as you said, these town names are only dry if you don't read the stories that, that happen in them later. So you got to keep reading, keep reading after Joshua and the judges and to Samuel and to Kings to find out what happens in these towns. And I, I suppose, you know, as, as you're talking with, you know, like the Philistine towns and, and never really fully taking these cities, this yeah. is, is a reminder or perhaps a, a reminder of what, the writer of Hebrews talks about that the rest that Joshua gave wasn't the final rest and the, right. the incompletion of the conquest points us forward to something more has to happen. And, and that something yeah. more is, is actually someone more Christ. Yeah. Because for a good example, think about Timnah. Now, if it were a, a Judahite town, then it would have been fine for Samson mm -hmm. to take as his first wife, a woman from Timnah. But it's not. It's probably a Philistine town. Judah's going to end up on this, especially on its western and southwestern actual border, not just its kind of, uh, you know, imaginary border. Um, it's its actual border. Timnah is going to be a Philistine town. So he just wants a woman from Timnah. That's not a nice Judahite girl. Um, that's that's going to be a pagan girl, and that is the very thing that. God told them not to do, not to give their sons to the daughters of the land or their daughters to the sons of the land. That is those who do not believe in the true God. So what you see in this list, uh, and this is where these, whatever, real estate sections or land descriptions work very differently than the genealogies. The genealogies in scripture will generally help you put a coherent picture of the past together once you have the stories attached to the names, the land list is particularly in the Old Testament, um, but also it works this way with the list of places the apostles are supposed to go in, for instance, Acts 1, are usually going to show you something about the future. So you have to kind of bookmark lists like this and then watch for them to appear again in the future because they'll show you the significance of what is going on. And the significance in this list is generally that Judah's conquest is incomplete. And so that therefore, as in all of the Old Testament here specifically, we're always waiting for more because we haven't yet seen a complete rest, a complete conquest, a total end to idolatry for God's people. Well, speaking of, of incompletion in the future, you, you've already mentioned the importance of Jerusalem as the end of this chapter. We've got about four minutes on the morning. I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap this up is with Jerusalem. Yeah. And so talk about Jerusalem and then kind of help us wrap this chapter up as to you know what we've been reading and how it's pointing us to Christ. Jerusalem is, a, is by its very name, supposed to be a place of peace. It is occupied probably on what is today thought of as kind of the southwest corner of the old city. Um, it is occupied by a group called the Jebusites. And like any of the towns in the Old Testament, it's going to be 
at some size or another, uh, a fortified area with dwellings surrounded by fields uh, and springs that are used by the people who live in that fortified area. So the Jebusites are there. This will, of course, not be taken until David's reign. And so this is such a beautifully open-ended list because we know that we're still waiting for someone to conquer there. It also shows you the importance of Jerusalem to a man who is connected to both this heritage by virtue of the people of God, but also because salvation is from the Jews, or specifically the Judah Heights, which is Jesus Christ who has to go to Jerusalem in order to die. It, it's impossible that a prophet should perish away from that city or the holy city or the city of the great king, as he calls it in different places. So if geography matters to Jesus, it matters also to us because we are also his people, even if we are not ourselves, Judah Heights. He's the one who takes that geography and makes it not just a history of an ancient tribe, but a sacred geography because it is land where God's promises come true. So when we learn that geography, we learn more about not only where the Savior walked and died and rose, but also about how he actually delivers in real places for very real people on his promises. Pastor Adam Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, helping us today with Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 63. Pastor Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. It's my, been my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.